Welcome to the Mind and Matter podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Harriet DeWitt. Professor DeWitt is a experimental psychologist who runs a lab at the University of Chicago, where she's been doing research for many years. Her lab studies the behavioral effects of psychoactive drugs on human subjects. So they do a lot of controlled administration of psychoactive drugs of different kinds to people in a double-blind, placebo-controlled fashion in order to figure out how they're affecting people, basically. And so we talked about a lot of the research she's done over the years. We talked about some of the work she's done with MDMA, looking at the social effects of MDMA, as well as the ability of MDMA to impact how we perceive emotions in other people's faces and how we perceive uh, sensations related to social touch, for example. We talked about some of the recent research she has done looking at whether microdoses of LSD actually do anything. So they, they gave people small doses of LSD, about one-tenth, give or take, of the dose that someone would take for a recreational psychedelic experience, and they measured in a double-blind, placebo-controlled fashion whether or not this actually did anything. Could the people tell they were on a drug? Was it having any cognitive or emotional or perceptual effects? And what whether or not it affected brain activity as assessed by EEG. We also talked about some of the work that she's done with THC and how that impacts people of different ages as well as the effects it has on memory. So if you're interested in psychoactive drugs and what they do to the human brain and what they do to human behavior, this will be a really interesting episode. We spent most of our time talking about the MDMA and microdosing studies that she's done with LSD. Some of that work is pretty new and it's relevant to anyone who is interested in the subject of microdosing, which has become popular lately and whether or not there's any clear evidence that microdosing a psychedelic like LSD actually has a measurable effect in human beings. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing on the Mind and Matter podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. You can support the podcast by clicking on the links in the episode description. You can find links to the Mind and Matter substack, mindandmatter.substack.com. You can see some of my writing there, as well as all of the podcast episodes. And you can sign up for the free weekly Mind and Matter newsletter. You can also click another link in the episode description to see some products and services that I like and that I use that you can also try out for yourself as a way to help support the podcast and keep it growing and keep it going. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Harriet DeWitt. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I'm at the University of Chicago. I'm in a department of psychiatry, but I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm an experimental psychologist. And I've been here at the University of Chicago since I got my PhD several, many decades ago. And I do research looking at the effects of psychoactive drugs of all kinds in healthy human volunteers under circumstances where they don't know what they're getting. So we do all our studies under double blind conditions and uh, we look, we tell them they might get any one of a number of different classes of drug. And so I'm interested in how drugs affect human behavior and human experiences. And the research has mainly been funded over the years by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. So the main focus of the studies in the past has been drugs that have some potential to be used for non-medical purposes. And uh, only recently have I gotten interested, I would say in the last six or so years or eight years in drugs that uh, well, it's it's interesting that the, these drugs that we're studying now uh, uh, were originally known as recreational drugs, and they're, we're now discovering that they might also have some therapeutic effects. So uh, I, I'm not sure what the question was you asked me. I think I probably already meandered. You asked me, what do I do? I'm a I'm a I'm an experimental psychologist. I do studies with human volunteers and study behavioral effects of drugs. Mm. And and so this change that you mentioned, you know, focusing on drugs with some abuse potential and looking at that side of things, and then shifting focus to you know um, potential positive benefits of drugs, including drugs that we thought, you know, some people thought you know were just recreational or just potential drugs of abuse. Looking at them on on the other side of the equation and what they might be used for in terms of like medical applications. Wh which drugs are you talking about there, and what sort of prompted that shift? It is a shift, and I referred to it as a shift. We were really just, we were interested to know what the drugs do to behavior. And I think when the drug that really got me interested to begin with was MDMA. So I had spent many years studying amphetamine, D-amphetamine and methamphetamine in healthy volunteers. And MDMA is very similar in many respects to uh, prototypic stimulants. But there's also something that's different. And I saw as my challenge to see what it is behaviorally that's different about MDMA that gives it this reputation for having pro-social effects or empathogenic effects. So uh, it's almost as though some of the same effects, behavioral effects of a drug might, might support the non-medical use as also supporting medical use. So it's not as though I'm making a huge transition. It's more, I want to know how the drugs affect behavior and that might be relevant in a, in a therapeutic context, or it might be relevant in a, in a uh, um, more recreational context. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for MDMA, you mentioned, I think there's probably a lot of people who don't realize what MDMA stands for, that it is uh, basically a type of amphetamine. So how is it different or, and similar to, um, to just amphetamine? How, how, how does, M what makes MDMA different pharmacologically and, and what kind of, yeah. what kind of effects does it have that, that, that something like speed does not have? Uh I think the main difference is, is in the mechanism of action that, that uh, so D-amphetamine and methamphetamine act mainly on dopamine and serotonin. They act both as uh, 
or and uh, or and or cocaine for that matter they act as uh, they they release the neurotransmitters or they block the reuptake of the transmitters and the distinctive thing about MDMA is that it acts preferentially more on serotonin receptors so that's thought to uh, uh, account for the distinct effects of the two distinctive effects of the of prototypic stimulants and and MDMA that's what i've spent the last several years looking at trying to find out whether there are measures on which the two kinds of drugs are different and whether other measures that they're the same. So they're the same in many ways, both stimulant drugs and MDMA, other stimulants and MDMA make people feel more social. They make people feel more energetic. They make people feel sometimes more confident. Then if you get into ratings of adjectives, how they describe how they feel when there's also a couple of adjectives that distinguish uh, that, that are true for MDM that increase with MDMA and not with stimulants or more with MDMA. And one is a measure of loving. How loving do you feel and how playful do you feel? So there you start both the, 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 the amphetamines also show an increase there, but the MDMA a little bit more. Then we've done, uh, do you want me to just get into the studies that we've done or do you want to wait and ask me question to direct me? No, no, go go for it. If you feel like um, there's interesting studies that speak to uh, what we're talking about now, just, just jump right in. Yeah. So um, when you think about what is empathy, for example, it could be uh, are you able to detect emotions in other people? Are you? Does the drug uh, make you better able to see whether somebody's sad or happy? Or does it increase your response to the emotion and other people? Or does it make you just feel more social in general? Mm -hmm. So those are some of the, the studies that we've done. So we can look at we can look at people's ability to detect an emotional expression in a face that we present to them. And so actually MDMA increases the threshold for detecting anger and fear. So that means you need to show more of the expression of the facial expression for the subject to be able to detect the emotion correctly compared to something like happy, for example. So I see. So that's so one of the, when someone mm -hmm. takes MDMA, you're saying that uh, if someone has like an angry face, uh, someone on MDMA will, will be less likely to pick up on that or the, the face will need to be angrier exactly. for them to pick up on it. Exactly. And so that kind of, we hadn't predicted that. We didn't know that. But that kind of behavioral process could account for the drug's use both in non-medical uses, in like in, in social settings, where if, you, if you're interacting with strangers and, and somehow, you, you know, when you're interacting with strangers, you're always afraid of being judged. Or, or, and so if this drug decreases this perception that you have of other people judging you or being angry at you. And if it decreases that, then it might make it easier to socialize, for example. So it might help if you're in a, in a, you know, bar or rave situation where you're taking the drug and, and it helps you to overcome any constraints that you might have because you're feeling judged or you're feeling that somebody there's, whether there is or is not an angry expression that you're, it's your perception of it. But then on the other hand, even if now they're using it in psychotherapy, and it could be even in psychotherapy, that there you have to make yourself very vulnerable and you have to interact with a therapist. And again, if you if you are less sensitive to any perceived negative expression in the therapist's face, that might get, make it easier for you to reveal things. So that that kind of phenomenon might 
that kind of behavioral process uh, uh, might influence both recreational use and medical use. And Does so, that make sense to you? Yeah. So in addition to to making it uh, harder to pick up on like these negative cues and these negative emotions, MDMA is also, you know, because it's an amphetamine, it is also having a stimulating quality on top of that, right? That's true. That's true. And it, and it increases feelings of well-being and uh, energy and uh, makes you more focused. So it's doing all those things that amphetamines do as well. One other study that we did not too long ago was uh, looking at pleasantness of social touch. So it turns out there, uh, there are many MDMA users claim that they, they, their sense of touch is improved and, they, and, and that somehow makes the drug more pleasant. And so it turns out there's a standardized measure of pleasantness of touch. If you stroke somebody's hand, we use a brush and you st stroke it at one rate, it's considered to be social touch. If you do the same stroking, but do it faster, it's not social touch. And this has been, there's a whole, there's a whole discipline on this sense of social touch. And we want to know whether the MDMA would increase this pleasantness of social touch. And MDMA does in a dose-dependent way. So the higher you give the drug, the more pleasant the social touch was. And methamphetamine didn't do that. So there was an interesting one where there's a distinction between the methamphetamine and the MDMA. Mm. So even though they're both stimulants and they're both probably changing thresholds for basic sensory detection, there is the specificity to MDMA for social touch that that isn't enhanced by a regular amphetamine. Exactly. Exactly. And and when There's you say dose when you say dose dependent here, can you talk a little bit about the doses that that you're talking about? What kind of doses do you use in your studies and how does that compare to what people are using out in the wild so to speak? Yeah, right. We have uh, used doses. Sometimes we give the dose by body weight. So that's 0.75 milligrams per kilogram of body weight or so 0.75. And the highest we give is 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. And that's a substantial dose. That's a that's about as high as most people would want to go in an in a recreational setting. Right now, we're doing studies with just a fixed dose just because it's easier. We're giving 100 milligrams and that's used in a lot of other studies as well. So how does it make them feel? Uh, it, it, it's, I, I don't know how to describe it. I guess, it, I, I guess some of the effects are really just detectable if you have these subtle behavioral measures looking at responses to emotional stimuli and so on. I think for, for the, the, the immediate effect is really like a stimulant in many ways. I see. And, um, so you mentioned that there is this effect with MDMA where it's harder to pick up on these negative emotional cues that people might give you, you know, looking at an angry face or something like this, it becomes harder to detect that. So you're less, uh, you're less inhibited or you're less, um, you know, affected by, by those negative qualities that you might perceive, um, in other people's faces is the flip side also true. Does it become easier to detect positive emotions or, or do people, that's a good question. We have in in one study we found a, a a decrease in the threshold of detecting detecting happy, and in another study we didn't. So that's it's it's the review is mixed on that one. I see. So so maybe there's some uh, enhanced ability to detect uh, happy faces or whatever, but but it's unclear. Exactly. But definitely, what's happening it seems is that you're uh, you're less inhibited, you're less encumbered by uh, negative affect that you might pick up. So you're sort of disinhibiting people exactly. in a sense. 
Exactly, exactly. And it's actually working on your ability to detect it. So it's not even your response to it. It's you just don't you don't see it. So it's a it's a very basic kind of perceptual process. Interestingly, when you you asked a little bit about how MDMA works, the 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 effect on serotonin is also thought to result in an increased release of oxytocin. So oxytocin is a bonding hormone that's involved in mother-child bonding. It's also involved in bonding between men and women. And uh, MDMA, especially at the higher doses, produces a significant increase in plasma levels of oxytocin. So it's tempting to think that it's the oxytocin that accounts for this. So it's 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 the, the effects that we see are, are, can, can easily be foot fit into a kind of schema of feeling more connected or feeling more bonded with in socially, which might you might want with mother-child interaction. Whether it's actually related to the oxytocin remains to be determined. It, there could be other actions of serotonin, for example, that could have the same result. And, you know, you mentioned that you're using, you know, in the ballpark of 100 milligrams, which is, you know, roughly speaking, uh, it's a full dose. It's a dose that someone would choose to take in a recreational setting. It's a dose approximately that that is used in a lot of um, studies. There's this phenomenon now with um, psychedelics in particular of microdosing, the idea that you could take very small amounts of something that has very little or even no discernible psychoactive effects, and maybe it'll have um, some some beneficial effects despite the fact that you're, you're sub-threshold for the psychoactive effects. Um, have you done that? Has anyone done it with MDMA at all, where they look at like lower doses? Or, I think- yeah. Good question. I don't know of any scientific studies that have done. I've heard of it as sort of just anecdotal reports, and I haven't seen any studies that have done that, basically. Yeah. And, you know, sticking with MDMA just for a minute, um, one thing I want to ask about is uh, how much is too much? Do we know anything about, you know, um, uh, toxicity, cytotoxicity or neurotoxicity that can come from MDMA, um, either by taking too much or by doing it um, over a number of years? Does it cause any damage? That's a really hard question to answer. I, I think any drug that you take at, at, on a very regular basis at high doses is going to produce damage. So, you know, not recommended. Uh, uh, there, there was a controversy some maybe 20 years ago now about neurotoxicity of MDMA in particular. It hasn't held up that much. It's not doesn't seem to be that different from other stimulant drugs that you also shouldn't take in high doses on a regular basis over a long period of time. So, uh, so that the, it it had a reputation for neurotoxic effects and it hasn't hasn't completely held up. <laughs> and when you give you know when you give a hundred milligrams, um, give or take, in a experimental setting, um, one thing that people often talk about in recreational settings is you know, they'll go out to a party or whatever, they will be taking MDMA. And sometimes at least some people report that the next day they kind of feel depleted, like they feel a little bit depressed. And and they attribute that to like, you know, all of their serotonin kind of getting used up and needing to be replenished. Um, do you observe that kind of thing in uh, experimental patients when you give them MDMA? We have looked for it. And a number of other people have looked for it. And we don't see it. Some people call it like the Monday morning effect or Tuesday morning effect or something. Of course, there's a lot of other things that happen on Monday morning after you've had a weekend of partying. So I'm skeptical that, I mean, I think, yes, if you took it in high doses for a number of days in a row, then you'd be just like with amphetamine, you'd be exhausted at the end of that. 
Um, but whether there's a really predictable dip in mood, uh, 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 we haven't seen it. We have uh, asked our subjects like 24 or 48 hours later how they feel, and they feel just fine. So mm-hmm. now we're talking about a, a single dose at a time. So it, it could be that people are taking much higher doses in their party situations. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me. I mean, you guys are giving uh, you know, lab-grade tested uh, MTMA that you know is pure. You're giving it at, at a very... Uh, well-specified dose, you know, one time. So to the extent that that phenomenon is true, you're saying it's likely that people are taking too much or they're taking it for multiple days in a row, something like that. Or they're not used to getting up to go to work in the morning, or they took a lot of other drugs, or they drank, or they didn't sleep enough, they didn't eat enough, you know, a lot of other things are happening. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And um, so you, I know that you've done some work recently too, looking at psychedelics like LSD. So, you know, how long have you been looking at psychedelics and, and what are some of the major research questions that your lab has uh, started to grapple with recently? The only studies I've done have addressed this question that you just raised about microdosing. So I haven't done any studies with full dose of LSD. I was curious about microdosing because there are so many claims, so many people claim to be using it and benefiting from it. And the claims are very diverse. I mean, people claim so many different things with microdosing. They claim, you know, physical, athletic performance, leadership, antidepressant, anti-anxiety, pain relief. They just, in every part, you know, marital improvements, all, all kinds of things, a couple, you know, so... I'm set up to do studies under double blind conditions. We're talking very low doses. And I thought this is something I could do. I could look at what these very low doses do with the most sensitive possible measures under completely double blind conditions. Because you just, in the in the real world situation, you we have no idea how much of it is expectancy. Nobody does microdosing or takes drugs in any case without having some sort of expectation that it's going to have some beneficial effect. So I think that's kind of what I do. I study the, just the purely pharmacological effects of drugs. So we started out just kind of seeing what kind of dose we might give that might be testable. And it turns out to be very challenging um, for several reasons. One is if you if you don't see any effect at all with microdosing, if there's no self-reported effect of the drug, then you don't know if you're high enough and whether you're doing anything. If you do detect an effect, then you might be so high that expectancies kick in. And then whatever they thought that was going to happen, it influences their their results. So it's a very tricky thing that you have to find a dose that you think is just below what might be a detectable effect. The other thing is that people vary a lot in their sensitivity to LSD. So some people, you need a higher dose to see any effect. Some people report effects at very low, lower doses. And we have we we can't predict that ahead of time. Some of that has to do with the absorption and what they call pharmacokinetic properties, like how much of the drug gets to the brain. And some of it has just to do with differences in sensitivity to the drug. So it, it makes it a very, very challenging topic to study. But we went ahead and did it and we tested uh, doses of uh, 6 and 13 and 26 micrograms. The dose that people use to really trip is 100 micrograms or 200 micrograms. And so we're the, the microdosing range is around a tenth of that, basically. So we started looking at we looked at some EEG measures. We looked at some brain activity with fMRI. We looked at how it makes them feel. And and so it, it, it produces effects, as you might expect, as you increase the dose, there's more and more kind of psychedelic perceptual kinds of effects. 
we don't, but the main subjective effect that we really get from the low doses is a feeling of stimulation. So that that's it's, it increases ratings of how vigorous they feel. There's a little bit of antidepressant effect as well. But in our most recent study, we gave the drug on four occasions. So we gave the drug first just on one occasion to see, kind of select a dose. And then in a separate study, we gave one group of people got four doses of placebo. One group of people got four doses of uh, uh 13 micrograms and another group got four doses of 26 micrograms. So we wanted to see whether there were lasting effects and whether the effects changed over repeated doses. The effects did change over repeated doses. They became smaller. So that's consistent with what they call in pharmacology tolerance. But just so, so you see an effect on the first session and then less and less and less as with repeated sessions. So we saw that for a, anti, a decrease in, in depression. And we also saw it for increase in vigor. So a feeling of energy. But by the fourth session, that wasn't there anymore. We measured all kinds of emotional responses, cognitive responses. We measured things after the four sessions, and we really saw nothing else other than those things. So uh, at, at, at these doses in these people for this number of sessions, we didn't see any support, strong support for the idea of, of microdosing improving anything. But, you know, we never you, you just don't know whether maybe you didn't have the right people. Maybe you need to get really depressed people to start with. Maybe we didn't have the right outcome measures. Maybe we didn't measure exactly the right thing that would detect the effect. Maybe there's a lot of variability across individuals and in what they feel. And so we wouldn't get that with standardized measures. We had, I think, 18 or 19 people in each of our three groups. And maybe we didn't go long enough. So that's another possibility. Maybe you have to do it for three months in order to see an effect. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask, uh, so what kind of people were in the study? Were these people that had past experience with psychedelics? Were they, sounds like they were not people with major depression or some other psychiatric condition. What were the, what were the inclusion criteria? Yeah, sort of a middle ground. I didn't want to be the first person to give these people LSD. So we selected people who had at least reported ever having tried some kind of either MDMA or or a psychedelic of some kind. So that was one thing. And a lot of them, a lot of people have tried them once or twice and sort of not have an adverse response. We also tried to get people who were high on self-reported feelings of depression or anxiety. So we got people who were high on a questionnaire measure of negative mood states because we thought the drug might improve that. It turned out that all three of our groups, whether they got placebo or, or either of the doses of the drug, all three of the groups improved over time. So mm. the placebo group improved just as much as the drug treated groups. I see. And I guess this is the entire point of doing these double blind placebo controlled studies is, so what you're saying is the people who got microdoses of LSD, either 13 or 26 micrograms, they did report a mood boost, but the people who got no LSD yes. also reported a mood boost. Yes. Yes. And this is a phenomenon that plagues a lot of psychiatry, pharmacological research in psychiatry, that there's this large Sometimes they call it a placebo effect. I don't like to call it that because it can mean so many different things. But at least patients who enroll in a in a in a treatment study where they get some attention basically improve over time anyway. Mm -hmm. But something was happening because you said that there was this tolerance you saw session by session, yeah. um, and that was to sort of the invigorating effects that people were reporting. Yeah. How much time was between sessions? Three to four days. I see. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. Um, so three or four days between sessions and with each session, you basically saw some, some drop off in that effect that LSD was having at those low exactly. doses. Yes. 
And, and and tolerance has been often reported with LSD. So it was not it, at some level, it was not a surprise. But we didn't know. We didn't know whether something might emerge with repeated doses. It could mm-hmm. be also that there's some accumulation of drug. And so you, something might appear that wasn't there in the first session. So we didn't mm-hmm. know. And, you know, there's this question of, you know, the subjective side. How do people say they feel when they take a drug or they take a microdose of LSD in this case? There's also objective measures that don't depend on uh, the self-reports of these people. Did you look at any objective measures of things that were were changing in the brain or anything? Uh, in that study, we didn't look at changes in the brain. We did these behavioral tasks, like the task I mentioned, where you detect emotions in people's faces. In, in faces, it didn't change that. We did a number of cognitive tasks, like go no go performance and brief memory tests and. Uh, a couple of uh, we did a whole battery of different tests because some people claim that they 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 have improved cognition when they're microdosing. Now that that impression of improved cognition could also come from this kind of increased in increase in vigor and arousal and alertness that people that the our people reported in the first couple of sessions. So you know there's some drug effects c- could lead people to interpret it in some way in a in a way. So I see. I'm not saying that. So basically, um, so for the doses you looked at over four sessions, 13 and 26 micrograms, roughly speaking, this is, you know, about a 10th, give or take of what someone would take in a recreational setting to have a full psychedelic trip on LSD. And you're not seeing anything obvious in terms of cognitive or, or perceptual effects. Correct. Correct. Right. Um, and then, but you did these other studies that, that I, I took a peek at where you were looking at, um, brain activity. So yeah. was when you look at the brain activity of people taking microdoses, do you see any detectable change that the drug causes? The only studies that we've done so far have been with a single dose of the drug. So most recently, we used a, a measure of something called, it's called evoked potential. It's what the brain does immediately after you it receives a signal. And there's when it receives a sort of an unexpected reward, there's a particular signal that the brain has. And this particular signal is dampened in people that are who are depressed. So it's it's thought to be a measure of reward sensitivity. And, and accordingly, people who are depressed have a dampened one of this. And the LSD in our study increased that reward signal. So it suggests that it increased the brain's responses to an unexpected reward. So that's I guess, consistent with an increase in feeling of well-being. We only did it with a single dose. It's also consistent with this feeling of stimulation and increased Mm -hmm. vigor and things. So uh, kind of an energizing feeling. What was the dose that you used for that one? 26 micrograms. That was 26 micrograms. Single dose of 26 micrograms. Yeah. So uh, I guess it remains to be seen. And I think other people are doing that if if you administer the drug repeatedly over an extended period of time, whether there are lasting changes that might look like antidepressant effects, and presumably somebody else will be doing that. Mm-hmm. So, so in other words, you have a non-invasive uh, way to measure brain activity. So you're yes. um, you're measuring brain activity. You're you're putting people in an experimental situation where you can detect uh, the response the brain has to some kind of reward. And this response, exactly. this particular response that you measure is higher when you give 26 micrograms of LSD. Yes. 
And and when you give the 26 micrograms of LSD, are they in that situation? They have this heightened reward response. Are they perceiving that they have gotten the drug? Do they realize that they have gotten the drug? Or is it is it causing uh, undetectable psychoactive effects for the person? Uh, that's a good question. And I'm not sure we've looked at it quite in that way. I would say that of the 24 people that were in that study, some people probably identified the drug correctly and other people didn't. And I don't know whether that brain response was highly correlated with whether they detected it or not. And that would be an interesting question to look at. I see. So, um, so on balance, like what, you know, so, so you've done this research, has anyone else looked at microdosing LSD or psilocybin? And if so, what do they generally find? Do they generally find results kind of like what you've seen where the cognitive and perceptual changes are minimal or absent, or do have other people found things that, that are impacted by microdosing? The the studies that have been the largest and and kind of best designed in some way have used what they call citizen blinding. So they let people use their people who the, the subjects are people who are microdosers anyway, and they somehow the experimenters arrange for the subjects to blind their own doses so that they don't know whether they're getting active drug or placebo. And again, there they have, and then they arrange it so that the subjects get some, some of the subjects get placebo throughout, some of them get a low dose throughout, and some of them get a higher dose throughout. And there they saw some beneficial effects, but only in the people who correctly identified the drug as the psychedelic drug. So mm. they said they could not rule out expectancies from that. So they were, that was specifically what they were interested in, whether there were any effects if people were not able to detect it and and they basically all their account their results were accounted for by people who correctly identified the psychedelic and they were microdosing and they were using their own drugs so there's a bias there for you know for people to support their their expectations now the there is a possibility that there are beneficial effects but you need some kind of detectable effect in order to in order to achieve them. So I don't know how to solve that problem. So on the one hand, the detection can invalidate the results because it, it can be, then it can be attributed to their expectancies. But on the other hand, it might be that you need a little bit of a detectable effect in order to get the beneficial effects. So I don't know how to resolve that one. And this hmm. the question of blinding drugs. Uh, in psychedelic studies is is haunting the field right now, especially with higher yeah. doses where it's impossible to blind them. Yeah. So, but with these, um, so one thing that strikes me is um, these low doses of these micro doses of LSD have the sort of stimulating invigorating effect, even though they're not causing full-blown psychedelic effects. Is it possible to use like an active placebo to give people like a little bit of amphetamine or something so that they're not sure if they got... Yeah, uh, like, how, how, is that possible? Has anyone done that? That would be a, no. That would be a good thing. That would be a good thing to do. That would be an interesting good thing to do. You know, amphetamine also it used to be used as an antidepressant. So you have to be careful with something like that. Mm -hmm. That if you give repeated low doses of amphetamine, that might have some pharmacological effect in itself. I see. Yeah, but I guess yeah. But the, the basic idea would be, you know, for the for those listening that aren't familiar, instead of like a, a regular placebo where you're giving someone nothing, like a sugar pill or something, you actually give them, 
you know, one group, the drug, in this case, it would be your microdose of LSD. And then the other group gets an active placebo. So it's actually another drug that does have some detectable effect, but it's going to be distinct yeah. from the drug yeah. you're studying. And that, that sounds like maybe it's a way to tease out some of these uh, difficulties. Yeah, definitely. If you could come up with the right uh, controlled drug to do, because again, you don't want a drug that, that might have the beneficial effects. You want something that just produces uh, it's just it's just hard to come up with a drug that that it would really not be expected to have any antidepressant effects in itself. Mm-hmm. You think about caffeine, well, it might have antidepressant. You think amphetamine, that might. So uh, it's hard to come up with something. I see. And um, so basically, I mean, is it fair to say, you know, based on the EEG studies you've done, based on these other studies that you've done, those microdoses are doing something. They're having physiological effects. We know that some of these EEG signals that you're measuring from the brains of these people are changing, but there's been no clear sort of bona fide um, cognitive or perceptual or emotional benefit that is clear, meaning that you can rule out expectancy effects. Correct. That's right. That's kind of where we are right now. So there, there could still be something there and and we haven't been able to detect it. You know, one of the things that I thought of when I first started doing this research, and so LSD also has its primary effects on serotonin. And antidepressant drugs also act on serotonin. And for the longest time, when you first start taking antidepressant effects, they don't have any detectable effect. And somehow over a period of weeks or months, as you take the drug, the the your your symptoms somehow are alleviated. And I thought, so that's in theory, then I thought LSD, a very low dose of LSD might be doing something similar. So if you gave something that was subthreshold that people couldn't even detect, and you gave it over a long period of time, then it might have an antidepressant effect, not unlike the SSRIs. So that, that was kind of, I thought that was from the point of view of mechanism of action there, that there was some reason to be optimistic. And it still might be, it still might be something like that. I see. Yeah. You would just have to do a more long-term study where you were giving LSD yeah. repeatedly over you know, probably weeks or months even. Right. Is there any uh, uh, concern there? Is there any concern there about microdosing something like LSD chronically? Not to my knowledge. It's a quite a safe drug. I, see. I mean, uh, uh, just to my knowledge, I, I, I don't see any obvious cardiovascular problems or toxic neurotoxicity or anything like that. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I, you've got an audience. I, I wouldn't recommend that anybody do it partly because they can't, it's hard, so hard to get pure drug that mm-hmm. anytime you take a drug that you've gotten from a source that you, you're not really confident, it could have other constituents in it. So I would be worried about that. Yeah. I mean, one thing that other people have talked to me about, on the subject about is, you know, on the one hand, most of these classic psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin, DMT, they're very safe from the perspective of like toxicity. They don't really cause cellular toxicity or any damage in that sense. Uh, but one thing that people have alerted me to is, you know, the psychedelic effects come from the serotonin 2A receptor, but apparently there's this other serotonin receptor 2B, and it's expressed in the heart and other places. And I get, I forget the name of it, but there was some prescription medication back in the day that was a, a, a serotonin 2B agonist, an activator of that receptor. And I guess that drug got. Po- I don't remember the name. 
That could have been okay. it. Okay. But anyways, this drug got pulled because it was causing uh, heart issues, heart valve issues that were dependent on this uh, 5-HT2B receptor stimulation. And no one has shown, I don't think, that that happens with psychedelics. But the concern is because LSD and psilocybin, I think, also hit that receptor, that that's at least a possibility. Definitely possible. And I, I, I should be care careful when I say a drug is safe, completely safe. Of course, we don't know. Um, so what other things, what are some of the other things that your lab is working on right now that are really interesting? Let's see. Uh, one of the things I got kind of interested in back to MDMA has to do with the social effects of drugs. So usually when people, when we study drugs, we study the participants alone. And yet the, the main effect of the drug is a social effect. Mm. So we've gotten into studying. Uh, we did it. We just finished a study and it's been submitted now for publication on uh, the effects of MDMA on uh, feelings of connectedness. So we had subjects, we gave them MDMA or placebo and we, they had to have a conversation with another Actually, it was another, it was a confederate. It wasn't another participant. They had a, just a casual conversation over 45 minutes. And at the end of the 45 minutes, they rated how meaningful the conversation was, how connected they felt, how close they felt, and how much they liked their partner. And the MDMA significantly increased their feeling of connectedness and their liking of the partner. Then uh, maybe, unfortunately, we went on and did the same study with amphetamine, with methamphetamine. And it did exactly the same thing. So <laughs> it mm. made people feel more connected with their partner. They liked them more. They thought the conversation was more meaningful. So that was kind of, you know, it's it's one of these things. We, we might have just stopped with, with MDMA and it would have confirmed our beliefs, our pre-existing beliefs that there's something that this is unique to MDMA. But then I thought it was also important to show that we could do it that the same effect occurred. And amphetamine does make people more social. And so, but this, that's just, it was interesting to us. Um, so, yeah, go oh, ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. I, I'm just interested in other aspects of how drugs affect social interactions. You know, it hasn't been studied very well. So we're thinking about doing the same thing now with alcohol. Again, alcohol tends to make, people feel more connected with each other. And then it also gets really complicated because then it depends on what the other, whether the other person is also intoxicated. And we've done a little bit of that with MDMA, giving it to people either alone or with another person or with another person who's also under the influence of the drug and see what, how that changes. It gets really complicated because it's such a bi-directional thing that the, the you, as experimenters, we don't have a lot of control over how they're interacting, how they're responding. The other person is responding back to them, but clearly, I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's important. It's there's some sort of interaction between the therapist and the patient when the patient is under the influence and somehow that the drug is affecting the interaction. And so I think there's a lot there to be learned. Mm -hmm. And what, what do you make of, uh, so I think, you know, MDMA is in phase three clinical trials now for PTSD. Are you, are you hopeful that it's going to uh, pass through that and sort of be used as a, a powerful new, new tool for treating things like PTSD and other conditions in the context of psychotherapy? Well, I think it's very promising that it's gotten as far as it has and, and, and it would be wonderful if it can be captured and, and uh, incorporated into psychiatric practice. Um, you know, everybody, 
feels that we have to step very carefully. And I think that's true that it doesn't get misused or misdirected or used in ways that then could counter all the progress that's been made. So uh, I think if it holds up, then that would be great to have another tool. Mm -hmm. And so how, um, how has it been like over the past few decades working with controlled substances like this? Has it become easier to get the research done? Is it still very difficult for you? Um, do you have to like get a lot of approvals? Like, like how easy is it to like do studies like this where you're working with schedule one or, or, or other scheduled drugs? I think once you've gotten some approvals and once you've established yourself as a credible you know, scientific lab, it, the, the, the issues are mostly surmountable. So, you know, I, I'm quite conservative in what I request from either the institutional review board of my institution or the FDA or the DEA. I don't, I don't ask for a lot. I don't think, I mean, I'm just, I'm quite conservative about it. So, so, and these, the, the, the regulatory agencies work with you to try and solve, make things happen. So I don't see them as being a big obstacle. I would say the one exception where I've had to not do the work has been cannabis that, that there, uh, it it turns out it was very, it was very difficult at the federal level, but then they changed the rules. So it had to, you had to get state approval and that became insurmountable. So I didn't do any more work on, I do a lot of work with THC, the pure THC, but not with cannabis for that reason. I see. And when you uh, get these drugs to do your studies, where do they actually come from? Like, are there government labs that synthesize and provide these or, or, or where does it actually get manufactured? Where does it come from and get tested and all that? It comes from a credible pharmaceutical company. And I, again, I don't use very large quantities and I, I got the drugs quite a while ago. And, and so they've lasted me for a while. It, it might be more complicated now. I see. Um, so what kind of research have you done um, with cannabis or with THC in particular? Have you done similar studies to the ones that you described for like MDMA and other things, or have you looked at other stuff? Yeah, we've looked at effects of MDM of a, a THC on memory, either memory uh, uh, consolidation and and memory formation and then memory retrieval. So that was a whole series of studies. We've done THC in uh, most recently in uh, in late adolescence versus young adults. And it turned out that late adolescence, so 18 year olds were a little bit more sensitive to THC than were the people in their twenties. So that was looking at age related effects. And we've done some of these reward related tasks with, uh, on, with EEG with THC as well. So uh, again, we're interested in how the drug acts on the brain. We're interested in how it changes behavior. We're interested in how people differ in their responses to the drug. So some people like THC and other people don't like it. And mm. uh, that's one that's very strongly influenced also by expectancy. So if you give t- people THC and you don't tell them at all that it's having it has anything to do with cannabinoids, they really don't like it. If you tell them it's an active ingredient in cannabis, they like it. <laughs> Interesting. So the so, same people will say yeah. they like it or don't like it, depending on how well, you. Well, it was two separate it. groups. One group. Oh, one group. We told them it was they were they were likely to get a drug that that was an active con- constituent of cannabis, and the other group we told them it was going to be a 
any of one number of a number of classes of drugs, including antiemetic, I think we called it. So interesting. Anyway, and like, yeah. th- does that kind of thing influence um, like the cognitive effects of THC? So, for example, do the effects it has on things like memory um, depend on whether the person uh, likes it or doesn't like it? Good question. Um, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. And it, it would be testable with our data. So I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting because, you know, I could imagine that there's an effect there. A lot of people say um, that, you know, they take cannabis and it helps them do what, you know, whatever. It helps them do their work, helps them focus. And of course, a lot of people report exactly the opposite. I wonder if there yeah. is some kind of interaction there based on uh, how pleasant uh, the sensations are for people. It could be, it could be, could be. And what what do you find generally for the effects on memory? Because um, you know, I know that it depends a lot on what exactly you mean by memory, right? And how much of the drug that you're giving. So, like, how, you know, how memory is affected in the moment while you are on the drug versus does it affect your ability after that um, when the drug is out of your system? What are some of the results you've generally found with respect to THC's influence on memory? If you give the THC while people are learning some material, it's significantly impairs their uh, their ability to remember it sometime later. If you give it to them only at the time of retrieval, then it can increase their false alarms. So they'll they'll it, they'll endorse items that they didn't see before. So it can it doesn't impair the memory of doesn't kind of overall dampen their memory of what they learned, but that you just get more mistakes basically. So that's probably the main thing. We've looked at it during encoding and during consolidation and then during retrieval. So th- there, there are definitely more nuances there to the data, those the THC memory studies that I, I can't really go into details here. I see. And when you do those kinds of studies, you said you're using pure THC. Um, I want to ask about dose again. So in those studies, what kind of doses are you using and how might that compare to you know how much THC is in a joint or something that people out in the world are using? We use doses that are available in capsule form, 7.5 milligrams and 15 milligrams. Um, it's hard to compare to smoked cannabis because the, the, as I said, the pharmacokinetics are very different. The drug is when you smoke is absorbed more quickly. And so then you get higher concentrations in the brain at, at, at a faster rate. Whereas when it's taken orally, it's absorbed much more slowly and you overall probably get lower uh, brain levels. Um, but people feel pretty high, even with the 15 milligrams oral, uh, and and we've had problems going higher than that. So no, we're not we're not studying very heavy users. So that's another thing that their that their prior history probably influences their responses to drugs. And we're studying relatively light users. So going to h- higher than 15 milligrams makes the drug un- that people report unpleasant experiences, anxiety and nausea, and they don't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, what are, what are some of the, like the major, you know, questions that you think are outstanding in terms of, um, I want to go back to psychedelics and microdosing or macrodosing. Are there any, uh, new questions that you guys are investigating to build on what you've done already or things that you're working on or about to work on moving forward? I don't think so. I, I can't think of any work 
kind of trying to fill in some gaps. We're doing some more studies with people who are more depressed and low doses of LSD to see, but there we're just looking at single doses with EEG again. But again, we, we were worried that maybe we didn't get depressed enough people. So now we're extending that. Um, with MDMA, again, kind of more of the same using EEG and different, different kinds of tasks in the EEG. Um, so, w what are the burning? What are the burning questions? You know, a lot of the questions are, are just a, they're, they're they're difficult to do. So, those things like longer term studies or studies in people who are really troubled, who have serious psychiatric disorders, and and that might go on for months. That they're, they're huge undertakings, and I, I'm not going to uh, going to leave them to somebody else to do. <laughs> I see. And what what do you make of this whole phenomenon of you know, psychedelics just seeing this big resurgence, and all all of the promise that we're that we seem to be seeing as as it, as regards their potential for treating things like depression. Like, do you think that there there really is a lot of potential there? Do you think that this is an area where there's uh, a lot of hype going on, and we might get disappointed? What's your general take on sort of the the potential of psychedelics and similar compounds in general as sort of new tools in the in the psychiatric toolkit? Well, I think the results are very promising so far. I'm impressed. It's a number of studies, and and they're and they're very encouraging. I, I think all, all of us in the field are cautious, uh, and a little bit worried about what might happen and whether this bubble might burst at some point. I think there are some serious issues with uh, expectancies and blinding that are really difficult to overcome. So again, the, the people that are using these drugs for treatment, they have several preparation sessions. People certainly know what drug they're getting. There are preparation sessions. They have every expectation that they're going to benefit from it. And so it's really hard to kind of rule out this expectancy. Again, even when we give placebos and, and we don't give them strong expectancies, they tend to get better. So it, it, it's gonna. It's just gonna be remained to be seen, and people are gonna have to come up with clever ways to do the kind of control, the expectancy controls. And we thought that microdosing was maybe one way of doing it, and th there are some other interesting ways of doing it. Oh, what but, are some of those other ways? Well, one way is to give the drug in such a way that the people don't have a memory of it. So there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion about whether you for the beneficial therapeutic effects, whether you whether you really need the sub, the big subjective experience, whether you need that big trip and the memory of the trip. Mm -hmm. And so people are trying to figure out ways to kind of make people either not remember the trip or not have the trip and then see whether they still get beneficial effects. Wow. So what would that even look like? What would, would that mean like, you know, sedating someone and then giving, giving them like a psychedelic? That, yeah. Interesting. That's right. So the idea would be if the subjective effects, the psychedelic trip portion of the drug effects are not critical or not necessary for the therapeutic outcomes, you could sedate someone or give them some kind of memory blocking drug in parallel with the psychedelic so that, you know, the LSD goes through their bloodstream, it gets into their brain, it does its thing, but they don't have that experience. They don't, or at least they don't remember the experience. And if the experience itself is not important for the therapeutic effects, you should see benefit anyway. That's the basic Correct. idea? Correct. Interesting. That's right. <laughs> um, well, well, Dr. DeWitt, this has been uh, really interesting. Uh, your lab is doing some uh, interesting work with uh, microdosing and some of these other substances. Are there any final thoughts you want to leave people with or anything you want to reiterate um, before we go? 
don't think so. I think it's a it's an exciting field. It's a it's a you know it's a blossoming exciting field in psychiatry. For your audience, I would say though, you know, I it's I have an obligation to say be careful what you take and what doses you take and where you get what sources you use the drug and and, and just just use a lot of caution and and wisdom in how you proceed. So I I, I feel obligated to say that, uh, and I believe it. So. Uh, no, I think it's an exciting area of research to be in right now. All right. Dr. Harriet DeWitt, thank you for your time. All right. Thank you.